Tom, for our listeners, is just a thought leader, unbelievable author of, I think, five or six amazing books. I don't know, Howard, I've written 23, but maybe only five or six are amazing out of that total. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back, everybody, to this week's Sales Strategy and Enablement Podcast. I'm Alistair Wilcock, joined by my co-host, Howard Brown, pioneer, recognized authority in AI, revenue science, behavioral change for the past several decades. And today, we're really excited to really chat with somebody both Howard and I just think so fondly of as being a pioneer from the world of analytics to machine learning, artificial intelligence, generative AI. We want to welcome Tom Davenport, Distinguished Professor of Babson College, MIT, Senior Advisor at Deloitte. Tom, um, aside from being a prolific publisher of books, your latest All In on AI, and you know, before that, working with AI, it is just such a pleasure to have somebody like you with us today and dive into arguably one of the most disruptive times in technology that we're now, uh, now staring at. Great to be here. I agree. It's a very interesting time to be following these areas. Absolutely. And, and like we'd love to do with all guests, Tom, a lot's happening. The news is hot in this space over time. And you know, when we, we look at the impact, you interface with a lot of global enterprises. You interface with the academia world. The application of AI is becoming very real. And just this week, it was stated that developers using GitHub Copilot are 55.8% faster than the control group. I don't think that's unsurprising. We're already seeing that impact of generative and AI on developers and those functions and marketing. But beyond those use cases, Tom, I, I, when I talk with you, you, you live in a lot more of, I'll say, the business application of these things, not just the software development side. Where are you seeing this impact go to market? What are you seeing in light of these kind of announcements? Well, it's almost easier to say we're generative AI is not applicable than where it is applicable. There's so many different domains, but I guess the things that I'm most interested in are, you know, the unconventional ones, the idea that, for example, pharmaceutical companies can use it to um, identify new molecules and compounds and so on, because I'm not a huge expert on drug development, but I guess amino acids come in a sequence in the same way that words come in a sequence. So if we can see some of the underlying patterns there, we can specify some new sequences and that creates new proteins and that creates new molecules. So could be great for that sort of purpose. In general, I'm interested in AI and healthcare. There was a pretty good article by my friend Steve Lohr in the New York Times yesterday saying, the AI doctor will not see you now yet. <laughs> a lot of great things happening in that space, but mostly I think for kind of regulatory and cautionary reasons and also kind of fit with the process uh, workflow of the of the physicians and the nurses and so on. We haven't seen much going on there, but I, I think a lot of potential. And then a third thing I'm really interested in, I just submitted an article day before yesterday, I think, to Harvard Business Review about it is this idea of taking your own internal knowledge of various types and embedding that into 
generative AI so that you can answer questions either internally or for your customers, could be for customer service, could be for, I don't know, any business domain where you have a lot of knowledge. I think the companies that I profiled in that article were Bloomberg, which has it that created a, their own GPT, Bloomberg GPT, I think they call it Google, which created one for medicine called MedPalm2, Morgan Stanley, which I've done some research on, they do it for their financial advisors, and then Morningstar, which has a new system called Mo, has a lot of their investing advice in it. So Tom, I just jumping in here real quick. I, I'm first of all, super excited to be with you again. Uh, Tom, for our listeners, is just a thought leader, unbelievable author of, I think, five or six amazing books. I don't know, Howard, I've written 23, but maybe only five or six are amazing out of that total. (laughs) (laughs) Well, five or six of the ones that I have read, uh, you've published probably hundreds of articles on Harvard Business Review. Generative, as Alistair mentioned, is absolutely taking over the minds and uh, thoughts of every executive, if it seems out there. You're talking about knowledge management in the age of AI. And, you know, I want to dig into that for a moment. When you think about, you you gave a couple examples of Mo and uh, what uh, some of these other organizations like Bloomberg and Morgan Stanley are doing. Can you tell us a little bit about the different ways of building out knowledge management for today's workers? How is it going to enable them to perform better? How will we augment their intelligence? And then the different ways of creating those knowledge systems. You you mentioned embedding, there's fine tuning. Can you talk a little bit about the differences there? Sure. One of the books that I wrote that you may not have seen because it came out quite a while ago was a book on knowledge management. I think it's the second best-selling book on knowledge management. But yeah, that whole area sort of withered away in most organizations because the te- I think the technology just wasn't up to the task and it was too hard for companies to sort of get their knowledge into those systems in a way that it could be easily accessed. And so I think this new technology has a lot of potential for doing that better and more easily with, you know, all the language capabilities that these large language models have, kind of harnessing that along with a company's own knowledge. But you're right, there are a variety of different approaches. And I mean, one way to get all this knowledge in is to totally retrain a new model from scratch, which is sort of what Bloomberg did. I mean, they have a massive amount of data, you know, 40 years of financial data and news and so on that they could train it on. And they presumably have no shortage of computing power. And so they train their own model, you know, from the, from the beginning based on an open source model called Bloom, but it, it was a, it was a brand new model. And then there is a, an approach to taking an existing model and fine-tuning it, as you say, that's changing some of the parameters, but not all of them. Mm-hmm. And I think the example in the article that we used was Google's MedPalm 2, which they did it mostly through instruction tuning at some content 
tuning, but uh, they just, you know, wanted to make it really reliable and so on. And it turns out this is the second version of MedPalm. And even with the improvements in it, it can apparently, you know, beat humans on a lot of medical knowledge tests and so on, but they still don't think it's quite ready for prime time. So there's a a lot of, I think anybody who does this needs to have an evaluation phase after it. Mm-hmm. And then there's the sort of prompt tuning approach, which turns out to be much more complex than I realized. But, you know, you can't just sort of start issuing prompts to it. You have to take your highly curated knowledge to make sure it's, you know, accurate and up to date and and so on. Morgan Stanley, for example, did it with 100,000 documents and 100,000 documents won't fit into the prompt window or the context window, no. even though those are getting bigger all the time. So what you have to do is turn that content into embeddings, you know, um, a string of numbers, and that preserves, you know, the, the context in the documents and so on. And then when you want to prompt it, uh, you say, you know, I want to learn about establishing a trust for my client's granddaughter, turns that into an embedding as well. And it goes into the vector database and says, okay, which content in this vector database is most similar to that? And so it, and it loads it in so it can answer the, that question with the proprietary knowledge. So, um, yeah. And all this is done in private instances of the large language model GPT-4 in Morgan Stanley's case, um, so that you don't worry about their proprietary content going out into the rest of the world. You know, Tom, I'm really glad you talked about some of the training and some of the detail and some of the challenges in in doing this generative stuff, right? Because I think a lot of enterprises today are, they're sort of experimenting and I think it's great, right? They're experimenting, they're playing, they're building POCs. I think the difference between an enterprise putting out a POC and going to production is there's a massive gap that that you need to go from proof of concept to actually having something in production. And I think a lot of CIOs, chief revenue officers, they're thinking about all of the ways they can use generative and they're wondering, hey, is this something we can build in-house or is this something we have to go to an organization, whether it's a company like Revenue.io or a consulting organization? to actually do it for them. And I think in a lot of cases, people are saying, hey, we could just throw this together, write some prompts, and we have a product. Can you talk about some of the challenges of going from a POC to actually having a production-ready, secure product that's ready to, whether it's medical or technology, really to address the issues? Sure. Yeah, well, you know, I think it differs somewhat by content domain. Obviously, investing-oriented knowledge is a little bit less, I don't know, dangerous if you get it wrong. Somebody might go to jail, I suppose, but you're not going to die as a result. Medical knowledge, on the other hand, is uh, pretty, pretty critical to get that absolutely correct, even though humans don't get it absolutely correct all the time. So anyway, there is that that stage where, okay, we think the model works pretty well, let's evaluate it. As you use these systems, they change, you know, prompts affect the outcome. 
And so even at Morgan Stanley, first of all, the, you know, they, as I say, the documents are very carefully curated. They have a 20 person group in Manila that scores each document on how accurate is it, how relevant is it, how duplicative is it. And then every time they make any change to it, they run through a set of golden questions to make sure that the outcome is the same. So that's a lot of work. And then they tested it for a couple of months using 300 people in Morgan Stanley who do, you know, wealth management oriented work. So, you know, that's a lot of effort. And now they're rolling it out. And of course, the rollout involves training people on what it can do and so on. They had to start making the content in a little bit different ways. You know, they had to educate people on how to write for GPT-4 and how to tag for GPT-4 and so on. So um, there's a lot of effort, and you're generally, I uh, think, quite right, Howard, that, as in fact, that's what my most recent book is about. It's called All In on AI, and it bemoans the fact that way too many companies just sort of tinker yeah. with AI and do a proof of concept or whatever, but they don't make it into production deployment. And if you don't make it to that stage, then you don't get any real economic value. You get some learning, no doubt. But in general, there's the testing, there's the scaling, there's the integrating with other systems that you have, there's the upskilling for the people who are going to do the work, maybe some business process changes. So it is sobering what's necessary for production deployment. And it probably makes it easier in many cases if you can find someone who's done a lot of that work for you. And I think Tom and Howard, as they think of that question, kind of the, the classic of should I build or buy or integrate, you know, these things, right? What generative AI has done is suddenly given credence to AI, right? Like suddenly it's top of mind for everybody. It's there, it's in the market. One of the nirvanas of artificial intelligence is artificial general intelligence. But I want to play on that word because I'd actually suggest that the general is the key word in there in that a lot of people are building large language models with general information. And Tom, to your point, the way you ingest information is it really normalizes a lot out of that, right? So I remember many years ago, pre-Gardner, I was involved in some black boxes with some hedge funds. And the more data you threw at something, you can actually over-normalize a result. Likewise, if you don't have enough data, you don't get a result. So it's finding the balance of, do I have the data to actually create the specialization, not the general intelligence? And I think right now you're seeing generative create a lot of this noise of, oh, well, I can put a few things together and prompt some things. And therefore, isn't this, isn't this amazing? Well, Tom, to your point, if I'm Morgan Stanley or I'm Bloomberg or I'm doing amino acid analysis... You better have really precise data to support that. And I think you're seeing this almost generalization of usage, which people think is enterprise ready, but it's going to fail miserably like the chatbots before them, where a generalized chatbot nobody likes, a highly specialized one they do. And so I think we're quickly moving to this age of is generative AI and AI is it the master or is it the apprentice? 
Yeah. One person I worked with, an entrepreneur in the AI space said she thinks of these foundation models, as some people call them, ChatGPT and GPT-4 and Llama and Bird and Palm or whatever, as dial tone. And it's really what you add to the dial tone yeah. uh, in, in our telephone systems that uh, makes these things useful. And it's a necessary step, but um, it's kind of a you call it a foundation model for a reason. It's something that needs to be built on top of to really get a lot of value out of it. Yeah, I'd, I'd love that. Dial tone. I was thinking of it as compute or storage, but dial tone is spot on. So I'm interested in, look, you work with entrepreneurs, you're a teacher, you write books. Like We have a bunch of sales leaders and revenue leaders as in our audience today. How should they start thinking about reshaping their employee experience to really unlock the potential through things like generative AI. Well, yeah. I, I mean, as you know, this transition has been going on for a while toward a more data and analytics and AI approach to sales. And earlier in your company's history, you started to measure things more and see how different people are doing and how different approaches to interacting with customers was working and so on. So, you know, we start with that general approach to measurement and testing and, and evaluation and so on. Then I think that some of the earliest AI applications were just prioritizing sales activity. You know, you start to say, okay, I can call on 10 customers today. Should I call on the 10 who are most likely to make the sale or should I just do it do it randomly or through, uh, you know, my intuition? <laughs> and it seems like a total no-brainer to call on the ones who are um, most likely to buy from you since all salespeople have, have limited time. And now I think you can, I know you, you guys had done some of this earlier, you can start to evaluate everything that a salesperson says and every activity that they do and say, is this more likely to contribute to a sale? And I think, you know, generative AI, because it has the potential to understand what customer responses are and also the ability to personalize communications with that customer, I think it's going to make it even more, you know, um, an AI intensive activity, which, as you know, is a huge change for the sales function, you know, from the Willie Loman days. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, when I think about the sort of the prioritization or next best action, right? Telling a rep or support person or anyone really what what is the next highest value thing that they should be doing, that is really a push approach, right? It's pushing the, the information to the user so that they can essentially accomplish or optimize whatever process or task to, to achieve the desired outcome. Where if you think about ChatGPT, it's really a pull approach, right? You're, you're asking it for something and then it's giving you something based on what you're asking for. And I think there's got to be a way to combine the next best action with, okay, now I'm talking to the person, I'm getting the information I know, and now something happens that I need a prop. So I think you use the financial advisor example, 
or even a doctor, right? A doctor might get next best action. They may get a checklist of things that they should cover with a patient based on a diagnosis. Now the patient mentions something, they need to actually quickly find that knowledge and deliver that information to the patient. And I think combining those pieces will really be this next stage of opportunity for organizations, whether it's healthcare, wealth management, sales, or anything else. Your thoughts on that, Tom? You know, I very much agree. And we're, I think, not quite there yet where we're, we're connecting push and pull, but um, that that's exactly the way that the head of analytics and AI and innovation at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management put it. He said, you know, we've had, would they build a great next best action system for financial advisors to use with their customers. And then this current system is more pull oriented, the the one using generative AI, but they do want to try to connect them at some point. Mm-hmm. And I was reading this article yesterday in the New York Times about healthcare and they were saying, well, now about the best we can do is capture the things that the patient is saying in a medical episode and we can create a, a summary of it and we can put it in their health record and so on, but we don't have any ability to respond in real time to it yet. You know, maybe the doctor, the doctor probably doesn't have a whole lot of time to go back to it, but if he ever looks at the summary, he can say, oh darn it, that was an opportunity to say you really need to stop smoking or whatever. So um, I, I hope at some point we'll connect those two things. Well, I'm glad you use that example, and it's literally what we've built at Revenue.io, right? It's the ability to listen in to what both participants are saying and doing, and then prompting them in real time with that knowledge or with what to actually say. So it, it's, when you build an application, you really think about your use case, but the truth of the matter is, you know, I come from behavioral health and mental health, the ability to actually apply that to helping people communicate, diagnose, and solve personal problems is a passion for me as well. So uh, hopefully we'll move quickly in the medical field as well. Yeah, no, I remember when I was writing about um, your work with at company Chow Now, and they were saying demos are really critical to customers taking on the, their products. And so if they haven't mentioned demo in the conversation, they'd get messages saying, you know, Talk about demos. Talk about demos. So I thought it was a really interesting idea. No, thanks. Yeah, Tom, Tom, I think I would love to explore next as well. You know, when you think about, you know, how we're now moving to this world of explainable models from just the ML process, right? Where we asked, hey, what happened, what to do, to now why? Why should I do something? But unfortunately, we are out of time. So hopefully we can have you back and dive into the why a little bit more. And we always like to wrap up, Tom, with our final pieces, some fun trivia with you as well, and make you pick out what is real and what is not. The first statement is generative AI could add $7.3 trillion in value to the world economy each year henceforth. Number two. By 2025, over 40% of all sales will be conducted through virtual reality technology. Number three, by 2030, just a short seven years away, all in-person sales meetings will be conducted by generative AI avatar holograms. 
eliminating the need for travel? Uh, well, number three seems a bit unlikely to me. Number could be number one or number two, but I think you know you see all these predictions about what generative AI is going to do to the economy. It's that number one sounded familiar, so I'll go with that one. Great choice. That is McKinsey's latest report, McKinsey and Company's article: seven point three trillion of economic values being added each year now with generative AI and AI in general. As we close out this session here today, you know, we started with, well, what are people doing? What are they thinking? And I think, Tom, your advice is spot on. This is now, you have to get it out of pilot. You need to get to production. For any senior executive leading a company or trying to drive the GDP as a politician of their growth of their country, there's $7.3 trillion of economic value there. I don't know of somebody that wouldn't and shouldn't be after that overall. So... Great to have your insights, Tom. Fantastic new book. We hope to have you back on another episode. Sure. It was fun. And to our audience, don't forget to like and subscribe. Call Howard and I on the hotline. Leave your questions, and we'll do our best to address them in a future episode. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. 